We live in a world of limitations and boundaries and live in a world of, I think, where you grow up and you, you develop your own self-limited beliefs based upon everything that you experience or the, the labels that you might get given. Um, and life is full of those obstacles and curveballs, but they're, it, it's all down to how you look at them. You can look at them as negative things or you can look at them as as opportunities. Hello humans, welcome to the Limitless Podcast, brought to you by Martin, that's me, and Phil, that's me, that's me, that's him. How are we doing? I'm good, how are you mate? Good, good. We're joined today by Steve Hines. Steve, thanks for coming along. AKA Beans, well known sure. for, for, for your name, might be more familiar with people. Uh, thanks, for, thanks for coming and joining us today. We want to talk about a variety of subjects around sort of human performance, resilience and leadership. But perhaps for our audience, you can provide just a bit of insight into what you're doing at the moment. For sure. Um, so I own a company called Energize Coaching. Um, we were originally called Getting It Done Personal Training. Um, but we changed our name about a year ago to try and cover a bit more of a diverse area. Um, so previous to that, I was a prison officer uh, for 22 years. I worked for 15 years as a physical training instructor. And... Uh, yeah, it seems like a lifetime ago that now. And uh, although I was coaching part-time while I was working at the prison, it got to a stage where I, I preferred my part-time job more than my full-time job. And, you know, I went about trying to make that my full-time job. So, um, yeah, so we help a wide range of people. And over the last 18 months, I've started specializing in, shall we say, more mature people over 30s, male and females. And uh, during the last five years, I've mentored junior coaches to be able to make a start in the career on the gym floor. So we've got all angles covered, one-to-one coaching, online coaching. And uh, I'm starting to have a dabble with a bit of public speaking now as well. So yeah, I, I reckon I'm one of the more, should we say, senior coaches on the island. So with that comes a little bit of wisdom. Um, and yeah, my opinion on certain things has changed a lot over the last couple of years, but that's kind of where I'm at now. Yeah, that's for you. I'm sure we can dig into that. Just out of interest, what took you down the, let's call it mature, because I fit in that category and maybe Phil does as well. What took you down that route of a 30? <laughs> um, well, I was forced to a little bit. I guess I don't appeal to the younger generation now, a few too many wrinkles. And, you know, um, it's a very, very different life to the one I lived when I was younger. Um, Find it more relatable then. Yes, yeah, so. and, and I look around now and I see people over the age of 30 who are struggling uh, and struggling with the world that we've created now. Um, and being a little bit older, being a little bit wiser, and having my own fair share of adversity, um, I've got hands-on experience, both from the prison service and from coaching, with helping people with these problems. So, yeah. I'm I, I, sorry, Phil. Cool. Uh, yeah, I was just asked, what, what do you think, what do you think the main drivers are with the reason why older people are, are perhaps, you know, struggling and then having to reach out? What do you think is causing that maturity, not older, Phil? Well, well, I'd pass myself. <laughs> there's a there's a few different reasons. Um, they could have been involved in competitive sport um, in their younger years, yeah. And then they get to a stage where they have to retire from that, but they carry on eating, drinking, socialising as if they were in sport, and inevitably, you can't get away with that too long before things start going wrong. Um, and again, I touched on this before. I think it's a very different world now. You know, I was chatting to a friend of mine a couple of months ago, and uh, he he's a busy guy. Don't get me wrong. But uh, he said to me, I envy you because I, I don't get the chance to be able to train and, and, you know, get to a gym and do what you do. So I challenged him. I said, you know, well, let's have a look at your screen time on your phone. And it was interesting. Bearing in mind, he sleeps eight hours a day. He was 11 hours on his phone. Um, and he was like, yeah, but I run a business. So I've got to use it for work. And I said, OK, let's have a look at your social media. Nine hours on social media. But the interesting thing is he doesn't post. So again, he's just spending, you know, over a third of his day just scrolling and looking at other people's lives. And, and you know, this isn't a young generation problem, I don't think. I think I think we're as guilty as they are. Um, and if you don't manage it, it can get out of hand very, very quickly. We, we were just talking about this downstairs, actually, before we came over, weren't we? And um, McKinsey have just done a great podcast where uh, they were looking at the, the explosion of mental health, and specifically in Gen Z. Um, and... Obviously, the, the the main things is what role did um, COVID play in that? Well, the answer to that is, you know, it played a role, but it wasn't the reason because it was already happening pre-COVID. 
Um, and it and it obviously then you turn your attention to social media. And we, me and Steve were chatting downstairs, and what McKinsey was saying on the podcast is it's not necessarily using social media is the problem. It's the way that people use social media. So you could use it passively or actively. So if you're actively using it, you're out doing stuff, but you're recording that, and then you're posting it, and you're going out, you're living your life, but you're using social media as a way of communicating that, or you're connecting with friends, so you're actively using the platforms. And what they were finding was that most of the young people that had mental health issues now were because they were predominantly passively using it so just scrolling without any interaction which is fascinating i'd never heard of it till this morning we've already been talking about it looking at everyone else's large yes yeah want to go in or doom scrolling as well you know just looking at you know doom scrolling where you're just looking at all the things that's going wrong in the world israel palestine ukraine and you know you kind of spend all your time just almost filling your your, your time with negative input my worry as well it, it, obviously working in a prison we'd get heroin addicts come in and we'd have to try and then get them off heroin with synthetic alternatives and then they basically are facing a life without that substance alcoholics again we'll try and get them off alcohol and withdraw them from the, the issues they were feeling and having but then again they're facing a life without alcohol uh, but how do we get rid of phone addiction because people are always going to need phones you know so it's going to come from awareness I think from the person who's using the phone um, and that falls into everything with regard to what I do, by the way, not just phone use, but everything. I think awareness is the first step. Um, being aware of your current situation and things aren't great, you know, doing something about it. But um, I do worry in 5, 10, 15 years' time how we're going to get through this problem, this this phone addiction problem. Guess a lot of education and... Yeah, for sure. Education to be had. Just to go back to the, the prison aspect, I assume that... That's part of rehabilitation process or now part of your role there was to help people with the physical side of... Uh... Yeah, and again, there's such uh, a link there. You know, it, it, it's... The, the old prison, believe it or not, was very, very good from a rehabilitation standpoint because the conditions were that bad, we were all in it together. Staff, inmates, visitors, everyone. And, you know, we kind of just accepted that that was that. And everyone would, believe it or not, like a team. When we went to the new prison, it became very clinical. And it became a high percentage of computer-based stuff and very little about rehabilitation. And that's when the novelty started to wear off for me. Because I've always wanted to help people. What was interesting through COVID when I was coaching is that although I was able to train to a certain extent, I really missed coaching. I really missed helping people. Probably more so than going to the gym for myself. Um, and, uh, you know, in the prison, definitely the more time someone spends out of a cell interacting and interacting with staff, more importantly, I think people who had a, a, you know, a good quality of life, it rubbed off, you know, and the odd success story we got from the prison certainly seemed to be more in the olden days when we we're in that Victorian, you know, those squalid conditions really when everyone just had to kind of get on with it, um, the lock them behind a door and let them suffer in peace situation isn't great for anyone. It's not great for staff because when you open the door, you don't know what you're going to get. And it's certainly not great from a rehabilitation standpoint with prisoners. So from a physical perspective, so when you, when you, because one of the things that I'm, I've got some friends that have spent time in prison and, uh, and they come out in great shape, you know, because, you because know, they get my perception from, from their experiences, you get structure, they get to train, they don't have a lot of the distractions, obviously, because of the conditions. Um, but the, it doesn't always stay like that when they get out. Does it? Do they always have that admit that 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 opportunity to create that real structure around their life and then train and get in wonderful shape? But then when you leave, you're then back into the same. Yeah, I, I think the statistics are frightening as to how many people reoffend. I wouldn't like to quote this, but probably be well off. But um, I think the first couple of months after someone gets out of prison are very important because they fall back into the same circle. Of friends that got them into trouble in the first place, then inevitably they're going to end up returning at some point. Um, you know, we try and press upon people that, especially if they're repeat offenders, you're going to have to break this circle, whether it's getting off the island, whether it's, you know, moving to a different part of the island, or, you know, just, just looking at your current situation and understanding and being aware that that isn't serving me well, I need to change. But the appeal of drugs and the appeal of drink tend to get stronger. Um, the more someone's in prison and then inevitably straight back into that circle, yeah. 
Yeah, so something I was going to chat about later, and obviously Phil talks about it as well, I suppose habit, habits, and I guess that's, that's a habit, isn't it? The habit is to go back and see your old mates, to go yeah. back and see your friends in the pub or, yeah. or whatever. So it, that, and I, suppose, I guess that's a big part of what you do now, is it? Chatting to people, you talk about phone use there, that's someone's habit, that dead time is just someone's habit. I yeah, and um, going back to the prison, um, what was noticeable, a lot of people came in and never had discipline and the like, and, you know, quite comically actually when you actually said no to someone they, they were like what? what what do you mean no you know they'd never heard that word before they'd never been maybe punished by their parents they'd never had any structure and routine at home and the minute they've got to adult life and had to fend for themselves that's where they really struggle and they can't so they end up committing a, a crime um and in a way what was interesting is we had a number of prison officers there who all had their own methods of doing the job and it was the ones who were firm but fair they always got the most respect. Should we say the softer officers who you didn't really know where their line was, they're the ones who struggled. Um, so the, pra- the prisoners, in a way, crave that discipline. They, they they crave that routine. You know, the same time on the exercise yard every day, the same time for a meal. They responded well to that. And, you know, from a physical um, fitness standpoint, we were just trying to give them a taste of what's possible if they look after themselves, you know, because again, a lot of these people haven't had sport in their life. They haven't had, they've grown up in city centers in England, some of these guys, and they haven't had the environment to be able to go out and run or walk or whatever, you know. So we were just trying to give them a little bit of a taste of that. Um, you know, we tried to steer them in the right direction from a nutritional standpoint. We tried to progressively challenge them from a physical fitness standpoint. And yeah, we did work with them on their behaviours as well, their habits and behaviours, and understanding what they were doing wrong, trying to put that right. And was there much pushback? Because I assume some ultimately doing it. Obviously, every client you have now wants your help, where perhaps in those situations. For sure. But what's interesting, we send a welcome pack to every client that comes on board. Page two, we talk about expectations and standards. Um, we talk about, you know, we don't allow phones on the gym floor if, if you're being coached one to one, unless there's an urgent call coming in, you know, we, we try and avoid that. And um, we talk about punctuality. We talk about um, their expectations from us as well, you know, that they should be taught, not told what to do. Um, and for me, ever since a young age, it's always been about providing value and, and dare I say, an education as well. Because where there's no understanding, there's very little longevity. So, so Phil, maybe just to touch on that, to get back to the habit point, what being you part of your coaching and part of what you do you talk about that yep uh, that's just obviously talk about different situations there where perhaps people coming into prison but that's almost hardwired in humans that that that, that routine is part of what's needed yeah and I think discipline is a habit isn't it so you know I mean a habit by its definition is something that you repeat over and over again and you know when I when I coach whether it's athletes or my private clients you know I use a lot of formulas to talk about like how to how to bring things together just because I think the formulas are easy for people to grasp and get their mind around. And I talk about this idea, the idea of commitment, victory, times, repetition equals resilience or discipline. You could, you could substitute those words there. And the opposite formula to that is easy option times repetition equals lack of discipline, lack of resilience. And you've got to get people into the idea that if they, if they persevere with a habit, they will see the benefit of it. There's something called the the belly of discontentment and habit forming where you don't necessarily see the benefit straight away. I mean, the gym's a great example. You know, you don't you don't really walk out of the gym noticing any difference day to day. <laughs> Probably <laughs> would with you, Martin. <laughs> if you went one years, if you went once. Yeah. But you know, people don't see a fitness improvement from one session, not even perhaps from one week. But when you really notice it is you know, you haven't saw someone for a month or two, you bump into them in the street and they go, oh my God, you look in great shape. You know, your, your face, your shoulders. Um, but you don't necessarily see that yourself. And that's the problem of habit forming is for the person that's forming the habit, they don't always see the immediate, the payoff or the benefit from it. You've got to get them to persevere and keep going through that belly. And how do you manage clients through that phase? So I was going to add to that actually, because we live in a world now, it's all about instant gratification. Yep. Um, so quite often people get fixated by numbers. Um, a lady came to me about a month ago and it was all about visual. I want to look better. I want to feel better, you know, and no no stage did she say, I want to lose three stone or or two dress sizes. But what was interesting when I started coaching her, she came fixated on the numbers, on the scales or the tape measure. And I have to keep bringing this lady back to the fact that 
you know, we use the analogy actually that if she was on holiday and a lady walked past with a great physique, what's your reaction? Probably wow, not oh, I wonder what she weighs or I wonder how what her waist measures. And I have to bring her back to that because that was her goal in the first place, you know. And as a coach, probably the most important part of a coach client journey is that first consultation. It's understanding the why because that's a cry for help, you know. And and um, I then design a roadmap depending on how much damage has been done over the years to help get that person from where they are now to where they need to be. Um, and that roadmap's essential. And mm. um, you know, a lot of people come with um, metabolic downregulation now. Yeah, they might want to start a fat loss phase straight away, but you know you'll get to a point where you can't drop calories and make them walk more and more. You know you've got to fix something first before you can then at attempt to fix the their problem. Yeah, so um, I guess there's a certain amount of managing expectations. There. Oh, hugely, hugely, and and being honest at that consultation and saying, right, okay, we can do this, but you know it's going to take a bit of time. Mm. Um, and and so and I go again. I touched on this earlier. For me, from day one, it's always been about providing value you know and and i would rather have 40 clients who are all doing really well than 400 who you know a, a high percentage of them are struggling i've got to sleep at night at the end of the day and and i made the mistake in the past of being too busy and my quality go downhill and i didn't like that it didn't i didn't i wasn't well myself because i didn't like that on my conscience so you know when i because i've had a rough couple of years with various illnesses and when i came through that i said right this is what I'm going to do now. I'm going to help less people, but I'm going to help them at a greater level. More quality. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, which is personal training at the end of the yeah. day. You know, the minute something becomes out of control, it loses its personal touch. It gets generic. It becomes generic. Yeah. So I, I had to come back to my standards and say, right, this is what I set out to do when I left the prison service, and I've got to stay true to those values. Right to the core. Yeah. So so let's dig into uh, one of the three subjects we, we often talk about. is human performance. Perhaps describe what that means to you in your industry, uh, and maybe you touched on just before we started how maybe you've changed your your thought process around that as well. Because I've been interested about that cycle. Yeah, we could we could be here all day on this one because forty um, five year old Karen from Zurich, her human performance goals would be vastly different than maybe a twenty two year old lad comes to me to build muscle. Not that I coach many to twenty two year old lads now, but I'm just using that that analogy. Um, so yeah, for me and this is just what I've learned recently, really, that we look at fitness, and I think you can look at three different areas. You've got physical fitness, I think you've got mental fitness, and you've got emotional fitness. So, for example, let's say I asked someone to climb five flights of stairs. They need to be physically fit to enable them to do that. Let's say someone got, uh, they lost their job. You know, they need to be mentally strong enough to bounce back from that. And again, from an emotional standpoint, let's say, you know, someone left you in a, in a relationship, from an emotional standpoint, that's going to be challenging and you need to get through that. So for me, human performance is to get through every element of life without it knocking you back too far. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And let, let's talk about that, how you, I suppose, maybe work in those three, three pillars, let's call them. Yeah. So again, it comes back to that consultation. What do we want to achieve? Now, now do you often find clients maybe or thinking it's one, but maybe it's two or three of the Well, things. what was interesting, um, four years ago, I was coaching a client, and it was just a, a normal fat loss client. And my consultation form at the time was about two or three pages long. And I was coaching her, and we were making progress, but minimal progress. You know, she was eating well, she was training well, she was doing her steps, she was doing her cardio, and I'm like, why isn't this happening? And in between sets one day, I said to this lady, oh, how did you sleep last night? And she went, oh, I don't sleep, I'm an insomniac. I was like, oh, why didn't you tell me? She said, well, you never asked. And from that moment on, I realized I needed to go deep with every single person that comes to me. So I took that consultation form that was originally three pages, and I think it's now 18. Um, because if I don't know something, I can't help somebody. Yeah, so... So you, we touch on the human performance, and you... you thoughts in that changing is that from being let's call it narrower of that physical side to there's other sides to this the emotional side the um why is that true people don't realize what they're capable of you know i, I built a reputation uh, over the years of actually smashing people's goals and then taking them further um you know someone might come to me and say i want to drop a dress size next minute doing a photo shoot or a bikini competition you know so it's harnessing that self-belief it, it's it's 
building confidence. And firstly, we, we run a foundation phase with everything. So everything makes sense. Now, like I said before, when something makes sense and they understand things, they think, are oh, actually right. I'm enjoying this. If they're enjoying it, they're going to keep doing it and they're going to sustain it. And then before you know it, the amount of boxes that you're taking on a daily and weekly basis, and you're going through goals and setting new ones all the time. Mm. Um, so yes, it, to me, like I say, it's very satisfying helping someone achieve what they set out to achieve very early and then saying, right, well, okay, you know, let's try this. And uh, one of the, the best compliments I ever got actually was, as a coach was uh, helping a lady achieve her goal in a reasonably small time frame. And she said to me one day, give me a reason to stay. I'll do it. She did. She, she was loving the learning process yeah. that much. She didn't want it to end. And she said, just give me a reason. Like, I want to keep doing this, but give me a reason. So we set new goals and off we went. Yeah. And she ended up working for me. So you might have seen, uh, uh, I suppose, athletes with that, I think, or, or for the conversations I've had as well, it's often that process that's that's the almost the, the key to the, not necessarily always the end goal once they're on that journey is they look at that process and once they've got to the goal it's another goal so they can go through the it's the process thing yeah and i think you know like whenever i get asked about um like athlete performance and things like that what what people often think is you know there's there's like special stuff that's going on in the background and and it's and it's a lot it's, it's actually much more boring than that <laughs> what you find with elite sports is they just have this relentless pursuit of doing the basics and it's and it's it's almost it's almost boring, you know. They 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 get up, they do the same thing over and over again. Um, you know, I think uh, in the book Legacy, where they examine the All Blacks by uh, it's a James Kerr, and then a basic principle of the All Blacks is that they they do the basics better than anyone else in the world. That's their that's their baseline. So so it's not about practicing flash, you know, reverse passes. It's actually about you know dispatching the ball handling the ball and being able to do it much better than anyone else and if you can do that repetitively to the point where you know it's completely unconscious that moment where you need to do that reverse pass in a match it just happens naturally without thinking about it um and if you think about it it's the opposite of the way kids practice in a funny way because if you if you go watch kids play football they almost always want to do the ronaldo trick or the overhead bicycle kick or whatever when actually, you know, you look at professionals and it isn't like that at all. It's relentless pursuit of the basics. That's funny. I was talking to someone at the weekend. Exactly. Right. It was football, like football coaches, and they look for the kids not not doing the flicks, who are doing the basic things constantly yep. perfect or 99% perfect, the sideways pass, the right pass. Yeah. It's not the not the flashy stuff. Yeah, it's funny. I was doing a, an FA coaching badge many, many years ago in my other line of coaching when I was younger, and we were in a classroom doing a little bit of theory stuff. And I noticed out of the window, they had people like Beckham, Keane, Giggs, Skulls. And for an hour and a half, they were just doing box to box. They were running. There was no ball. It was box to box. And we were just gobsmacked because we were trying to focus on the lesson we were doing. But we were like, how long are they going to keep this up for? Was that Lily Shaw was a bunny chance? No, uh, the Cliff Manchester United training. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. 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 Um, we were utilizing that facility, but it was literally an hour and a half of relentless running. You know, obviously, at other points throughout the week, they'll introduce the ball and do what they do. But, you know, it's the basics of it. They have to build the engine. Yeah. They have to, sure. Like decision making. So, if you imagine that if you use football or rugby are both good examples for this, how, how, how long in each match do you think each single player has possession of the ball, even rugby or football? It's probably minutes in, a, in an 80 or 90 minute match. But what they've got is a lot of decisions to make during that 90 minutes, which are out of possession. And actually, you know, practicing making the right decisions, you know, is way more important than, you know, being able to do a step over. And if you look at a lot of, um, I mean, Man United is a good example of this now when, when they, I've been watching a lot of United games, I mean, United, unfortunately, at the minute. And the the big critique is around decision making, usually. Roy Keane talks about it as like the, you know, uh, Rashford or whoever it is making the wrong decision. And sometimes, just that split decision, that's the difference between whether they score a goal or whether it doesn't happen at all. And it's nothing to do with skill. It's nothing to do with athleticism. It's to do with doing the right things at the right time. And that's just practice, practice. And when you get sick of it, more practice again. It's it's relentless, it is. Yeah. And again, I, I worry that kids of today are that distracted with devices and phones and things like that. They're not in the parks kicking a ball around. Yeah. Like They're not doing that kind of stuff. And, you know, I do worry about that for the future, really. But 
Yeah, no, it is a, it's a problem, isn't it? For sure, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about resilience. I think about, uh, obviously I don't go to the gym, but the the idea of the gyms, these kind of tear, micro tear, yep. heal, grow and grow. Yep. From a physical resilience, but you obviously touched on these, let's call it the other two pillars. Uh, maybe talk a bit about what you see there and how you try and help clients with resilience and yeah, the challenges you see. So the bodybuilding and yoga are very similar, actually. Yoga is about getting into horrible positions and learning to get comfortable there. And bodybuilding, in a way, is getting to the business end of the set where it really starts to hurt and not just staying there, but keeping control and cranking out rep after rep and just working through pain. And, um, you know, although the outcome is very different, it's a very similar approach. But, um, I mean, which is the more painful outcome? For me, yoga. <laughs> <laughs> Ask a yoga teacher, sure they'll say bodybuilding, but um, somewhere in between is the, the perfect middle ground. But, but um, you know, when, when we look at resilience, um, and they're good examples of building resilience, um, it's, I think, day-to-day, Every day, putting yourself in uncomfortable positions and just learning to get comfortable there. Um, and in my eyes now, we've created a very easy world. You know, if you want something to eat, you can get it brought to your door. If you want visual stimulation, you can get it on your phone, you know. And <laughs> with Tinder, you can literally get anything, you know. So it, it's 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 one of them where everything's so easy now. When stuff goes wrong, we're not built to deal with it like we should be able to. You know, and uh, I change that. It's appreciate it to me. Well, I do see a lot of kids in gyms now. Um, so I, you know, for me, I, I was chatting to a guy the other day, and he's like, "Well, oh, these young people come to the gym, I can't get on anything." I was like, well, "What's the alternative? Would you rather them on street corner selling drugs or sat at home on their iPad?" For me, it's character building. They're, they're taking care of themselves, so you know, I'm all for that. Um, and I chat to a lot of these younger lads because I'm double their age, sometimes even more. And I'm saying, you know, you should be thinking about learning the skills of training now. Forget how much you're lifting, how many reps and sets you're doing. Let's learn to lift properly. You know, you've got the rest of your life to get strong. Let's learn the basics of tempo, stability, range of motion, muscle activation, and, and control so that you are then able to progress that. But if you start with awful form and it's all about the way, where does that go? Where's the progression then? Um, but yeah, I mean, th- these young ones going to the gym now, they're doing the right thing. You know, they're, they're experiencing pain, um, and, and that in turn later in life is going to stand them in good stead. Um, is that a message you give them? For sure. Yeah. No, it's, it's, um, and I, don't get me wrong. I, I've got clients come to me begrudgingly. So I need a coach. I'm like, I'm in a real mess. And I'm even on day one, I'm explaining, this is going to be uncomfortable. You know, this isn't going to be easy. You've taken two or three years to get to the position you're in. It's not going to be a quick fix. And there's going to be days, middle of winter, prime example like today, where you might need to get out and walk and you wouldn't have chose that option originally. Uh, but you're going to have to do that. And, and the way we've got our coaching set up now is that we have uh, a very quick five-minute daily check-in. So we call them the non-negotiables. You know, are you getting your movement in? Have you got your training in? How's your nutrition being? How are you sleeping? Are you managing stress? How's your digestion? And they're data gathering exercises. And then at the bottom, we have a little summary. How's your day gone? What's gone well? What's maybe, what have you struggled with? And I learned more about someone from that little summary at the bottom, by the way, than all the data above it. Um, because that tells me the emotional aspect. Have they had a great day? You know, what have they struggled with? And how could we put that right? Um, and it gives us that hands-on approach and that accountability that I think people need. It's interesting to go because I, th- I think about teachers 20 years ago the job was just to teach and now there's so much more to it from you know they've got to be aware of there's mental health problems with the kids and be that emotional support I guess that's the same in, in your profession ultimately you've got a, a far wider range of skill sets that yeah. like you say just go and push some weight to the gym yeah I mean let's use two scenarios here let's say someone's never done sport in their life they've been very inactive and I give them a step count of 10,000 a day I would encourage them to walk fast you know, we want physical stress. We want them to get out there, pound the pavements and start getting a sweat on and start being uncomfortable. Let's say I've got a busy CEO. He's in and out of boardrooms all day. He's got a lot of people working under him. Stress levels are high all day. 
I'm not going to make him pound the pavements. I'm not going to give him physical stress on top of his mental and emotional stress. I'm going to say, go on, let's go out and just have 20 minutes, chill out, maybe drive somewhere quiet and bring that level of pressure down that you're experiencing throughout the day. So even though we might have a similar step count, um, the approach would be vastly different. You know, and again, that's that personal touch. It's understanding what the problems are and what that person needs to help them. And I presume you've obviously seen that with guys you've coached. And yeah, I mean, especially when you're talking about executives, you know, the it's common knowledge that, that we we do we live in a world where we're drowning in stress. Um, and and I, I I use a kind of a car as an analogy. We we've got rid of the fifth gear stress, so like the existential danger that's going to eat us. But what we've got now is like first gear stress, but an inability to go into neutral. Um, and the problem with that is that if you run an engine on first gear all the time, you know, you have all sorts of problems. And that's effectively what happens to our nervous system. Slightly engaged, stress response, unable to switch off, get it into neutral. Um, and then over time, you know, you start to develop chronic stress. Then your immune system starts to get compromised. You have all of the problems, mental and physical health that fall out the back of it. And it's all from an inability just to switch off that stress response. Yeah. If you look at our ancestors 100 years ago, they predominantly would have been rest and digest. They'd have been chilling out all day. And the only exposures they would have got to, um, you know, um, fight or flight would have been digging, fishing, hunting, you know, killing whatever they were going to eat. Um, and we flip that around now. You know, at no stage during a high percentage of population's day are they bringing things down into that parasympathetic state. Um, and, and again, going back to the coaching side of it, it's identifying that and trying to get people to be more aware of that. You know, whether that be meditation, whether it be guided breathing, whether it be just going out and walking with a bit of something chilled on, you know. Um, and I, similar, I mean, uh, Phil mentioned the, the car analogy. I use a saucepan. You know, quite often we'll be on the stove bubbling away. We're not spilling over, but it only takes something minute like turning that heat up a little bit and we lose it. And inevitably, when you look at afterwards, it wasn't that big a deal. But it's the fact that you've just been on the edge of bubbling over all day that that was the defining moment that took you over. Um, and if you can keep yourself at a three or a four during the day, and then when that thing happens, it doesn't make you lose your your your, your, your rag, then um, I think that's the secret. But we're, we're constantly on the go. It's... From the moment we wake up, phone, like, what's, what's going on? And again, people are far too guilty of being on the devices right up till bedtime. So, of course, they put the head on the pillow, brain still in the processing mode, they can't sleep, so. Yeah. The blue light. Mm. Well, it's not just that. It's, it's for me, if you look at your brain as a filing cabinet, you know, if you're constantly throwing stuff in, when are you filing? When are you processing those things? Yeah. Inevitably, when you put your phone on charge, set your arm clock, whatever you're going to do, that's when your brain really starts to make sense of your day. Yeah. So uh, leadership, let's chat about that. Yes. Many very aspects, quite interested from a prism perspective, how that worked. And also then obviously in your coaching as well, because again, you, you'd be meeting a variety of different people in different, from different age bands to different, like you touched on the CEO to the... To... Yeah. Um, I think there's a fine line between being a leader and being a manager. Um, I'm not 100% sure on the actual definitions of that. Um, I think I've been a leader from a very young age. You know, I'd always take responsibility in group situations. I started coaching when I was 18, coached a number 14 football team. Just before we dig into that, what, where do you think that's come from, from your perspective? I, I was born that way. Okay. I think, well, my brother's very similar. My dad was, again, very similar. It's from the family environment. I think so. I think so. Um, I'm learning to be a manager and making mistakes as I go. Um, but what do you mean by that? So, I'll give you an example. Let's say an, a riot alarm went off at the prison. You react first and you think later. From a manager perspective, it's about coming up with things and having time to think about things. That's, that's my uh, definition anyway. That might be right or wrong. Phil's probably the guy to ask for that. Um, but you know, a prime example, about two months ago, I was in a restaurant. Um, a guy was choking on a piece of steak. There was about 80 people in the room and I got over and like, heimlicked them yet. Mm. Um, now, I didn't think, you know, I just kind of did that. Um, two weeks ago, there was a crash on the mountain and I was stuck behind about 20 cars, got out, jogged past 20 cars. No one had got out, got to the incident. Police had just arrived. 
And fortunately, everyone was fine. But it was only when I walked back, I was looking in the car, so well, why, why does nobody else do that? But again, that's coming down to, I think, taking that taking control over a situation. Um, in the prison, you know, you, an alarm would go off, you'd get a, a notification on the radio saying where it was, and you'd run to that place. After <laughs> the staff running the other way. And, and, and uh, we talk about managers quite often when you got to deal with that situation, got, got to that location, the managers might have frozen, the leaders would take over. Um, now, that's not saying they can't manage things, but the real leaders seem to be able to just think on their feet, deal with it, and, and process that later. Yeah. Um, so in regard to then adapting and dealing with different clients, uh, for example, that's the leadership style would just change based on whether that client needs a, a boot up the arse or whether they need to pat on the shoulder motivation. Yeah. Um, Again, everyone is it's, it's yeah, so so complex to adapt is on that. Yeah, it, it's 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 being able to identify what the struggle is, and hopefully having the fixes and the solutions to get them back past that. And I guess age wisdom helps with that a little bit. You know, I might I might help someone differently now than I would have done five ten years ago, um, just from a little bit of um, age and experience, I guess. But yeah, it's um, it's very interesting. You know, when you when you watch people's reactions in that situation, it's very interesting. Because I, I, it, for me, things slow down almost to slow motion. And again, there might be a reason for that, I don't know. But I have this ability to kind of deal with the situation as, and look around and see what people are doing at the same time. Mm. Um, why that is, I've got no idea. He's the, mm. the expert. There's a great book, isn't it, called um, Rise of the Superman by a guy called Stephen Kotler. And um and he, he was talking about the misrepresentation of uh, what people call adrenaline junkies. So a lot of it was studying Red Bull athletes because they were obviously the, the, at the very edge of, of what was humanly possible. Um, and the perception is that people are adrenaline junkies. And what he was saying is that's that's not the case at all. So if I'm going to do a base jump, adrenaline is going to be what's flooding in my body. But really, it's it's my stress response kicking in. So I don't do this thing. It's trying to basically push me away from it. So my stomach's churning, all those stereotypical things. It might be getting up on stage and presenting. But if we use the, the base jump as an example, and what Stephen Kotler's saying, that when you step over the edge, effectively your brain goes into instant flow state from the old, uh, the Hungarian psychologist, Mihan Csikszentmihalyi. So what he talked about was flow state was this idea that there's no time, there's no future, there's no past everything kind of starts to slow down. Athletes are always trying to get into this flow state when they're performing. And what Kotler was saying was that effectively it's not adrenaline that people get addicted to, it's this flow state. And one of the symptoms of that is that time slows down and effectively your brain realizes it's in absolute moral danger, realizes that potentially any sort of wrong decisions is going to result in death. So it slows everything down miraculously to give you the time and space to access the resources you need to access to make the right decisions. And if you if you talk to anyone that does extreme sports, anyone that does anything like base jumping, anyone, they'll talk about this thing where whether they get out of the plane or whether they jump over the edge or whether it's jumping in a, a, a motorbike, that they experience this slowing down of time, which is only perceptual. It's not an actual, obviously, physical slowing down of time. But their perception of time starts to slow down. Um, fascinating concept. Nothing to do with adrenaline, though. Everything to do with flow state. And I assume, obviously, play tennis player getting into the flow state. It's obviously it's not a life-threatening situation, but again, they're just using that that let's call it that inbuilt whatever it is wiring mechanisms to then adapt it and use it to process tennis balls coming quicker or yep. anticipation. Yeah, and 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 you may, and that's an a, an amazing point because. This is kind of what, what we're always in the pursuit of in performance coaching with athletes is to be able to teach them how to get into flow state, which is not easy to do because the the thing that interrupts flow state is is consciousness, you know, internal thinking, you know, stupid brain. The the, the brain, yeah. So if you, if you ask anyone who's done any sport when they've been performing at the very highest of their capability um, and you were to ask them what they were thinking, they'd probably say nothing. They weren't thinking about anything. It was just, it was just all... And I think the the the, the kind of phrases often used it all just sort of clicks together. Um, you get in the zone, which, whichever way you want to describe it. Now the key to this, though, is pressure usually takes people out of flow state. 
So this is where it becomes so difficult with athletes. You want to help them to be able to access this almost mythical nirvana state where they're not thinking about anything. They're not thinking about past and future. There's no interruption from their conscious brain. They're just allowing their body to execute the thing that they've done thousands and thousands and thousands of times. Pressure takes people out of that though. So the very time that you want it, it's most likely the time when it's hardest to get into it. And I think that's what separates the greats, so your Federer's and your Djokovic's and those sorts of players with the other players is they're able to access that state when the pressure's at its most, when they're in the Wimbledon final fifth set um, and they manage to, 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 to push out that result. And do you see that gym work that you follow that same process? In? And at very lower level, yes. And there are people who will take to what I give them very quickly, very easily, and then want more of it. And there'll be people who sometimes fight against it, if you will. Um, and that's where you've got to really use all your tools as a coach to to get them where you need them to be. Mm. You know, um, again, I go back to this foundation phase that we run with everyone, which is a settling in period, essentially, where they're getting used to having some structure from a nutritional standpoint, a training standpoint, a movement standpoint, and uh, just help them uh, getting used to being coached. But it's also a foundation phase for me to get to know them, you know, get to know what fires them up, get to know... Um, the, the the hooks that will help pull them along and um, so i think that foundation phase is, is critical if we can get that right then the rest of the journey usually goes well and you mentioned at the start there about the, the business now coaching coaches yeah how does that differ from coaching a call it a client interesting um and i've only had this realization very recently what i set out to do because i got full very quickly and I realized I can't help everyone or say no to people so I thought right I'll, I'll slowly start to build a team and I went interviewing people who aligned with my standards and core values and I was quite prepared not to take any war um, but what I've realized is that that's backfired on me in a way because these people who are leaders they are you know um, enthusiastic they're really keen to learn inevitably there's going to become a point where they want to go off and do it and be the leader. Um, so, but, but then I'm all right with that. I'm okay with that. You know, I, there's three questions I ask myself every year. Bearing in mind, I'm an older generation coach now. So firstly, am I making a difference to the people I'm coaching? That's most important. Secondly, am I raising the standard of personal training on this Isle of Man? And whether a coach is with me or they go their own way, they're still they're coaching at a great level. And thirdly, uh, I want to leave a legacy. Um, which I know when you interviewed my brother, he said a similar thing with regard to cycling. You know, I've taken so much throp from this industry myself. I think now it's time for me to give back a little bit. I don't know that's a cliche, but I just love helping people, you know, and if I see someone doing something wrong in the gym or if I, you know, see someone who needs a bit of help, I can't help myself. I, I, I want to help them, you know. So they're the three things. Now, like I say, it's all well and good building a team, but... Um, I can't rely on that team. And that's why over the next 10 years now, I've got to think about me. You know, I've got to think about what I want to do over the next, um, well, 10, 12 years until I retire. And the way the world's gone now with online coaching and, and you know, we've briefly touched on the mental health side of things. That's definitely something I'm keen to explore. Um, and, I, you know, with all the will in the world, someone can come to you and say, I want to lose two or three stone. But if they're not mentally strong enough to do that, then we've got a problem. Um, so it's, you know, I'm going to do some courses next year um, to enable me to become a better coach from that side of things. And I think that will merge really well with what I know already from the prison service and coaching on the gym floor. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big believer. So you talk about sort of bringing leaders through and the warriors, they almost take your place, take your clients. But yeah, for sure. I think if, you, if you're strong enough in what you, and if you're good enough, it's irrelevant because you'll find a path wherever that might be. Yeah. I see that in business. Where, yeah. And I say that to people I work with. It's just if you focus on yourself and, yeah. and continue to improve, then, yeah, bring people along and then they'll go off and hopefully they'll flourish in their own direction. Well, it's, it's all set good enough. Yeah. You know, when a coach leaves me, I initially think, oh, all that work. and mm. But now I get it. I see it totally different. Ripple effect as well. That, that, that person has got enough knowledge and enough tools and enough confidence to go off and go their own way. And I'd like to build a job part to play in there. Yeah. 100%. And again, it comes back to the legacy side of things and, and improving the standard of coaching on the island. Then you have to tick those boxes, really. Yeah. You know, and that, they're going to be great coaches for the next 20, 30 years. 
So last question for me anyway, on let's talk nutrition. Yeah. Again, a wide variety, I guess, depending on what, what the uh, individuals do and whether it's building bulk, I guess, or uh, just want a healthier lifestyle. I suppose start with the basics of how important it is to, because I think it's easily you, forgotten. You, you know, you can't have a race car and run it on unleaded fuel, can you? So it's a massive part of it. And and there's so many myths about now when it comes to nutrition. You know, a lot of ladies are under eating and, and they're suffering from a lot of mes- uh, metabolic problems. Um, and again, we look at social media, one guy's telling you to do this, the other guy's telling you to do that. And these influencers don't tend to have much knowledge, unfortunately, but because they've got a great physique, oh, it must be right. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's links between gut health and, and performance as well. So, you know, I had a, a meeting recently with somebody who's um, got high hopes and, you know, uh, they're, they're wanting great things from a physique perspective, but they fall into the trap of thinking a calorie is just a calorie and they're hitting X amount of calories, which from an energy perspective is great, but the quality of those calories were awful and they're getting bloating and distension. They're probably not digesting and, and uh, absorbing those nutrients well, and you're not going to get the biggest bang for your book with that approach. So, um, and again, we've created this world now where it's so easy to grab something on the way home, but the quality, the nutritional value of that meal is is questionable. You know, so um, you, you've got to you've got to look at someone's start point. Now, if someone's been having takeaways five days a week, you're not just going to suddenly throw them on chicken and rice. You know, there's got to be an evolution in a way as to taking someone from where they were to where they need to be, um, and that that's from a quality of food perspective. That could be from a calorie intake perspective, you know, um, the amount of people, I had a, a parent for the amount of people who said, can you write me a nutrition plan? Well, a nutrition plan should be always evolving. You know, it should take you from where you are now to where you need to be over a period of weeks, months, depending on what the goal is. So that plan would change, you know, and if someone's only eating 50 grams of protein a day and they should be eating a lot more, you can't just suddenly throw it down the net. You've got to acclimatize them to that. So but it's a very complex, um, complex area, and I'm not going to profess to be an expert on nutrition. I know the basics, um, and obviously, the results for clients over the years have, have shown that the basics work. Um, but I'm not Gordon Ramsay, you know. I'm not going to start writing incredible menus and recipes for people. Not to get too controversial around it, but do you think that's a a problem within your industry, um, specifically around? Um, uh, specifically around diet and nutrition and supplementation um, and and obviously not to disparage anyone in any corner, but but something that I think probably happens quite a lot, that there's a lot of bad advice that gets circulated pretty widely because of social media and things like that. So you touched on a great point before about consistency. You know, people want instant results now. And um, if you are four weeks in and things aren't happening, people are starting to question your approach. Um, but it, it, again, it's down to consistency. You know, you could eat like a king Monday to Friday, but if you go out on a weekend and throw it all away, then it's that evolving, never-ending circle of damage limitation and trying to repair it again. But yeah. Um, I assume with that, in the meantime, on the other side, it's getting reaffirmed on social media, for example, that you should be doing it. Totally. And totally. Do why. And, and Phil mentioned supplement companies there, you know, you might look at something and go, oh, wow, we're only X amount of calories and this amount of protein. But when you actually look at the ingredients, the, there's five lines deep in synthetics and E-numbers and flavorings, preservative additives that are going to really have an effect on your gut. And um, gut health is going to become a big thing. It's going to become a big thing because the way we grow our crops now, the amount of medication people take, gut health is hugely no, I don't. I don't think not just in physical health, well, I think in mental health. I think that you know, it's it's a very much it's a, an emerging concept and idea, but certainly this fascinating research where you know looking at the link between gut health and, and mental health. And I think over the next five years, what we'll probably see is that will that will become more and more wide widely recognised as a factor. Not not saying it's the only factor, yeah. but it will be a factor. For yeah, sure. for sure. I mean, I'm I'm a lifelong asthmatic. And when I get a chest infection, I have to have antibiotics to clear it. Otherwise, it gets pretty pretty dangerous. So I reckon over the years, I must have had, oh, well, God knows how many course of antibiotics. And my gut health has suffered on the back of that because it's like throwing a bomb into your stomach, basically. It kills all bacteria, good and bad. 
And on the back of that, I've had candida a couple of times. I've had all sorts of dysbiosis. So, um, you know, I'm slowly learning about that. And I'm working with um, professionals on trying to make my gut environment a lot more robust. Um, but I see it as a common problem with all clients, you know, um, and it ain't going away. Yeah. So actually, you've got one final question. As a, often as an outsider, again, listen to listen to people. They talk about how they uh, have developed their careers and done things. And people often don't see behind the scenes how people have built their own resilience. So, so perhaps talking about obviously yourself, I'm sure in all our lives we've had challenges. How have you dealt with them? Is that kind of grind different? What kind of? Yeah, I mean, I've had a tough couple of years. I've had a couple of cancers. Uh, I've had the candida. Um, I lost my dad. Um, God, I, the list is that long. I actually forget. Um, I had a couple of operations. I snapped me Achilles. You know, and all this co- has come in the last two, two and a half years. Um, and a lot of people do say to me, how do you keep going? But I think that's the way I've been brought up. You know, like I said, I had a paper round when I was eight and nine. I went out on windy days and rode my bike to deliver newspapers. When I was... Um, Getting that resilience. Yeah. When I started the gym at 17, I was training and I was in pain, you know, with every set I did. Football, I've had some bad injuries over the years. And I think every time you're challenged and you come through the other side, you realize, hang on a minute, there's something in this. Um, and I, I do try and do that with clients. I'll challenge them all the time. Can we try and do this? Can we try and do that? You know, and if you look at, I mean, you guys know about the ice, ice, um, ice cold water side of things. There's not a huge amount of science beyond physical benefits, but from a resilience standpoint, you know, it's uh, you can't even debate that. You know, um, I'm listening to podcasts all the time on the benefits from a resilience start side of things, and and um, just like I say, being in a position where you really want to get out, but trying not to. Yeah. yeah. Okay, great. All right, well, thanks for joining us. I think it's been an insightful chat for brilliant 50 on no, Yeah, appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, Phil. Cheers. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening, everyone.